I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Before we kick the show off, I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge some of the people that have um, passed away in the last couple of days. It's tricky because I'm trying to stay on top of some of the current things that are happening, and we're trying to discuss some of those things on this show but uh, everything is just happening so fast and changing so quickly. And we've lost three massive lights of the music world, people that were big for me, and I'm sure so many listeners of the show. One of them, the great Bill Withers, an amazing singer and songwriter who did not die from the virus. He had a heart condition that took him this week. But, uh, from the virus this week, we lost Hal Wilner, an amazing producer, and the great John Prine, who so many people know and love the songs of. And he's been battling, you know, for a couple of weeks now. And I guess in the last few hours, he lost that battle. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to take a second to say how much those people will be missed and are loved by the musical community. That's all. Please listen to their music and remember them as best you can. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello, music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, welcome back to season four. This is the season that sees us all through the COVID pandemic, hopefully. Coming to you on a weekly basis. My guest this week is someone who I've, I really hope to get him on the show for uh, a few years now, and I've never really had a way to reach him, so obviously it never happened. But recently I got to meet him backstage at Largo in LA, which was the perfect place to meet this guy, and he agreed to come on the show, Mr. Patrick Warren. He is a keyboard player, technically, but really he is a master of sonics. I've been seeing his name on, on a huge list of amazing projects that I've been into. 
everything that John Bryan was involved in, uh, most of T-Bone Burnett and Joe Henry's productions and soundtracks, um, artists like Amy Mann, Michael Penn, Fiona Apple, Tom Waits, and then some amazing movies that um, marry music and film so well. Well, P.T. Anderson, I guess, is the main director who's involved in all this stuff. His films like Magnolia, Boogie Nights, and Hard Eight, all of which Patrick was involved in. He's the ultimate connoisseur and player of the Chamberlain, which is a totally unique tape-based instrument, sort of like a, um, a Mellotron, or a lot like a Mellotron, which is the British version that came a little bit later, but it's even more finicky and complex than a Mellotron, and you'll hear all about that. Lately, Patrick has been involved in doing some amazing TV soundtracks. He's been working with um, T-Bone Burnett on True Detective, and a more recent show called The Shy, for which he's the principal composer, and that's into season three, I think, now. So in season four, as I've mentioned before, I'm going to leave you with minimal background info on the artist. Um, in previous seasons, I've spent a bit more time talking about them in their past, but I'm going to leave that to you, the fine listener, to look up on your own, but really you're just going to hear all the most interesting stuff straight from the horse's mouths, so to speak. But what we are going to do at the beginning of each episode is talk a little bit about this uh, pandemic and what's going on, uh, things that I found out about that I'd like to share with people, as well as hearing from listeners and hearing from past guests who feel like calling in and contributing. And so that's been starting last week, and we'll continue with that this week as well. Uh, if this is not something you're interested in taking part of or hearing about, I would just urge you to skip ahead to about the 18-minute mark where all of that stuff will be over and the interview will begin right there. I would encourage any listeners to call in or pass guests, and you can leave a message and just tell me what's going on with you, what you're doing in all this crazy spare time. Um, any news about your local regional place, you know, how this is affecting you and your lives. And uh, hopefully we can just share some stories about the musical community that we aren't going to hear in the press who tend to focus on all the celebrities and more famous people. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of us working folks out there who are taking a huge hit. And uh, this is where we can talk about it a little bit. So the number to call if you want to do that is 615-375-6318. That number is going to go straight to message, and you can just leave your message there. So again, it's 615-375-6318. Thanks to everyone that's called in so far, and please feel free to jump on in there, and I'll include you in a future episode. As always, this podcast is listener-supported, and if you're able to contribute in any way, I could use your help to keep this thing going more than ever right now. This has become my one job, more or less. I'm doing a bit of teaching and a, and a few session things that are rolling in, but uh, this is my main focus for the next little while. You can support the show either through a monthly Patreon subscription or a one-time donation. Both are really easy to do. Just visit stevedawson.ca or thehenhousestudio.com and go to the podcast page for all the info. It's all right there. And thanks to recent financial contributors and donors, Greg Anwill, Robert Wood, Mark Winborn, Rob Lifford, Gerald Bailey. It's much appreciated, you guys, and thank you. So I'll keep you posted on what I'm going through here first before we get into some callers. Uh, not to be um, too focused on myself or anything. I just want to keep you posted like on a, on a running basis every week, just so maybe it'll spur some conversation on with callers and maybe it'll just enlighten some people about what, are, what some of the things that us independent contractor slash musician slash producer people are going through. I guess what I'm up to is I've finished 
uh, some work that, that had piled up before, uh, some mixing and a couple sessions. I'm going to be teaching a little bit. Um, I'm interested in teaching some production and engineering things. If anyone wants to learn that stuff, feel free to contact me. I'm not sure what form that's going to take, but that's uh, I am going to do a bit of that stuff as well. I'm teaching some guitar and some pedal steel. Uh, what else? I'm canceling stuff left, right, and center. I have lost a lot of work, obviously. There's a bunch of touring with the band I play with, Birds of Chicago, that is um, that has gone south, and more of it is falling as we speak. Summer festivals are on the rocks, as everybody, I'm sure, is more than aware. So that's kind of taking me into the fall now, where I'm basically out of work, which totally blows, and I I'm not used to not working. That's really crazy. As far as financial support goes, as expected, I'm Canadian. I'm living in the U.S., and that makes me not eligible for assistance from Canada. Canada's done some great things looking after their citizens, both with proper and fast and free medical care <clears throat> and locking things down pretty damn fast. Um, looking after their citizens abroad, not so much. So I'm not going to harp on that. But I am a taxpaying citizen of Canada still, even though I live in Nashville. So it is a bit of a slap in the face to not get any financial support from Canada. But oh well. Uh, the situation here in the States, I think, is a bit of a gong show. Uh, there's a one-time payment that everyone's supposed to get, although I haven't heard of anyone actually getting it yet. I don't know if I qualify for that because I'm not a citizen, but I do pay taxes in this country too, so I might. I have no idea. And then there's this thing called the CARES Act, which was passed, that is supposed to help self-employed people like me and many musicians around Nashville and the rest of the country. The realities of the CARES Act are way less promising, though, and it'll be interesting to see how this progresses through the coming weeks. What it's supposed to do is apply access to unemployment funding for all kinds of people. But in particular, one thing that they've never supported in this country before is self-employed contractors like musicians and engineers and producers. So that got passed federally and it's a ton of dough and it's supposed to go, I don't know how it's all being funneled through, but it's supposed to go through each state and people can apply for state unemployment and receive both state unemployment insurance and federal insurance. However, they make it incredibly difficult for people to apply. I'm going through it right now, applying in Tennessee, and the process is painfully hard. Like, I basically have to go through and tell them every job I've done in the last couple of years and supply information or a form from each of those employers. And for me, that's a lot of people. Like I'm a freelance musician, I'm a producer, I'm a mixer. So it's like, you know, in the last couple of years, it's like 80 people and each one, it almost takes an hour for each one. So that's what I'm going through is dealing with that. And, and at the end of the day, I don't even know if I'm eligible. They aren't telling me. Then to make matters even worse, our charming governor here in Tennessee, this redneck asshole called Bill Lee has just informed the public yesterday that he may not comply with the CARES Act. That would shut out all contract workers in Tennessee from receiving unemployment. Uh, he needs to know about it. If you live in Nashville or anywhere in Tennessee and want to be heard about that, you can actually phone him and get on him to get his act together and comply with the CARES Act. He's threatening to not comply. You can call his office at 615-741-2001. Please do that. Give him the gears. He needs to hear from us. So depending on how you feel about all that, it's a big hassle. Maybe it's worth it. I don't know. Okay, let's hear from some callers. Uh, the first caller here is a past guest and a songwriting legend. 
Mary Gaucher. She's calling in from Nashville. She gets cut off at the end, but let's hear what she's up to. Hey, everyone. This is Mary Gaucher calling in from my quarantine in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I want to thank Steve for inviting me to uh, to say a few words to everyone. Um, I am at home uh, working on a book. Uh, I've been putting it off for, I don't know, two years. Uh, and now is the time. So um, I'm sitting at my desk daily and working on this project. Uh, it's called Save by a Song. Uh, and um, literally, I think I was saved by a song. Songwriting it, it itself has been my salvation over and over again. And music, uh, songwriting and music has been my life. And it's been an anchor and it's been my lifeline. So uh, trying to articulate that in a book. Anyway, um, uh, my heart is with uh, John Prine, of course, over there in the hospital, uh, deeply concerning. Uh, he's a dear friend and uh, uh, a hero. Uh, uh, he's, I consider him my leader, uh, probably the greatest songwriter I've ever known, and and um, and uh, a guy knows how to love. Um, uh, sending out prayers for him and Fiona. Uh, I'm praying for a recovery. Uh, he's uh, not well. I hope that this is a battle he can win and come back and write a song about. What else is going on here? I uh, played two weeks ago in Seattle. Uh, and at the time, that was the epicenter of the outbreak. It was our last show, and it was uh, the Triple Doors' last show uh, for the foreseeable future. And quite frankly, it was... Uh, terrifying. Uh, it was just terrifying to be in the city during the shutdown, uh, to be out in public, to be uh, unsure if I was putting people in harm's way. Uh, the show didn't cancel, and I've never canceled a show in my career, and I wasn't going to cancel that one. Uh, but I probably, in retrospect, should have. Uh, but we made it through the two-week quarantine, and, and we we are on the other side of it. I just hope I didn't put anybody in harm's way, and I'm, I'm more than happy to just stay home. That's Mary Gaucher. She got cut off there at the end. But uh, really great words to hear that Mary is busy at work, finding some time to uh, get her book down, to get her book down, to get her book done, and also some wishes for, for John Prine, of course, who is recovering, hopefully, from COVID. Haven't really heard an update from him. Uh, next, let's hear from a songwriter, uh, a really great artist, a, a young guy calling in from the UK who was just about to release his debut record that I was involved in. Let's hear from Joe Edwards. Hi, my name's Joe Edwards. I come from a small town here in Wiltshire in the UK, and I write and perform music. Um, at this point in time, nearly all of my living comes from playing live, so all of my immediate bookings have in fact been cancelled, uh, or just a few in the future looking hopeful at this point, but effectively the job has disappeared off the face of the planet. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to take a job with our National Health Service to tie me over, as uh, there is currently no support in place for self-employed individuals here in the UK. Um, they've been pretty quick to help companies and their employees to try and stabilise the economy, but unfortunately self-employed individuals have been told that they won't be getting in touch until June, which will be two and a half months after the, or the work was all cancelled. So um, that's just to say whether you're even eligible for any support. 
Um, fortunately, we've had a really kind response from ticket holders to say that uh, they, they don't want to accept a refund. Um, and it's true to say that uh, friends and family have been a huge support network during this time as well, checking that all is okay. And I think everyone's doing their bit to sort of check in on each other. Um, but just a quick bit of background, I first became acquainted with Steve when my brother Alex and I headed over to Nashville to record my first album. And uh, that, uh, that album, sorry, is actually due for release in um, the midst of all this on the 22nd of May. So that's about eight weeks away, uh, which will certainly make this interesting. Um, obviously, I'm quite new to the game, and it's unfortunate that I can't go out and promote the album live, which is obviously quite important. But um, trying to look at it positively and take commiseration in the fact that people are engaging in a lot of online content, be it Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, etc. So we'll probably be pushing more towards that for now. And radio stations seem to be adapting as well and continuing their shows, so also pushing towards that. Uh, people seem to be collaborating quite well here anyway, over in the UK and in my sort of local area. And everyone's jumping on the live streaming bandwagon. And I'll be joining a few local musos this week as well, doing my bits in the virtual festivals. So um, they seem to be drawing a crowd. Um, it obviously doesn't replace live music, but it's, um, you know, a, a good thing in the meantime. So anyway, hope all is well. You're in, Steve, and all those listening. And take care. Bye. Okay, thanks, Joe. Thanks for calling in, and best of luck putting out that awesome record that we made that you now can't tour for. Um, I'm going to play one more message here. This is from Doug Cox. Doug is a great dobro player and musician living on Vancouver Island in Canada, uh, sort of my old stomping grounds, although I didn't live on the island. I lived in British Columbia. And uh, Doug not only is a musician and producer, but he also produces one of the great uh, festivals in Canada called the Vancouver Island Music Festival. So let's hear from him about what he's going through on all those fronts. Hey, Steve, it's Doug Cox calling you from Vancouver Island. I hope you're well. As you know, I am a musician and a music producer, and I also produce Vancouver Island Music Fest, which is one of the big uh, festivals that happens here in Canada. And uh, yeah, I'm calling because of your email asking people to call in. You know, I've lost uh I've lost about three productions in my in my home studio and I've lost a tour. Um we're still not sure what we're gonna do with the festival yet, which happens in July, but it's looking not good. And uh one of my biggest concerns is really what's happening between the borders, um, because of the isolation period that anybody has to go through as they cross Canada into the States or the States into Canada, um, it's almost going to make touring impossible for folks on either side of the border. And as you know, I have pretty big ties to touring in the States and working in the States as well. So that's a big concern. And uh, I don't think there's an answer for it. I think it should be happening. You know, this the, we have to take this virus very seriously. As a festival producer, it's, it's important that we not only think about whether or not we're clear, but... Um, we have kids' areas, we have public kitchens, public washrooms, lots of old folks. So we have to look at our responsibilities in producing the festival as well. On the good point, I'm seeing a lot of great music come out of people, especially on, on Facebook. A lot of it, I hope, is uh, being safe somewhere because there's so much cool stuff and so much beautiful stuff that people are putting out that they're just being inspired to do. That's pretty amazing. Our local music scene is basically dead right now. Um, lots of people teaching online as well. I'm lucky as a Canadian because we do get some help from the government, but it's mostly the public helping by uh, by buying stuff and making donations and, and that kind of thing as well. 
So I'll see you on the other side. Uh, you can find me at dougcox.org, D-O-U-G-C-O-X.org. You can find our festival at islandmusicfest.com. And uh, to all my friends there in Nashville and in the States, I hope you're all well. I'll look forward to seeing you sometime soon when we can get back over that border. You take care now. Good luck. Great to hear from you, Doug, and thanks for calling in. Okay, again, the number to call everybody if you want to be included on this and and uh, have a, a say about what's going on with you in your life, please feel free to call in, 615-375-6318. It'll go straight to message and uh, leave it there. And a shout-out to our amazing sponsor, our good friends at Union Tube and Transistor, making amazing guitar pedals and other fun stuff you should check out at uniontone.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Just a note that this episode was recorded before the pandemic started, so there's no mention of it whatsoever. We are not in denial. Here we go. This is my conversation with Patrick Warren. I've been reading your name on on the liner notes of records, a lot of my favorite records, really, from the last like 25 years, and and then combined with with meeting you recently at Largo, which is a place that I associate with a lot of the artists and musicians that I've also loved. Um, I thought maybe we could start by, instead of talking about specific music stuff, by just talking about the role of a place like Largo and uh, how it's had a, an impact in your career. The way that I see it, it's been, you know, for, sort of from afar and from somebody that's not involved in that scene, it seems like it's been an amazing place for everyone to to gather and to experiment and be in a supportive environment. And I'm just wondering how important a place like that is for you um, throughout your life and your career. I would have to say it's hugely important and it kind of grew from um, very small, humble beginnings when Largo was on Fairfax. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't, we all knew something was going on. It was, that was special. We just couldn't quite figure it out. We didn't realize that we were one (laughs) of the very, very few places in LA where you, you know, where you could hear a pin drop when you did a performance and people would actually listen and, um, I think it's, I think originally it, it sat 125 or something like that. And it was, uh, four blocks from where I lived in the Fairfax area. Oh man. And, uh, I, as a, like, I have a fond memory. I think Amy Mann asked me one Tuesday, like, let's, let's do, let's play Tuesday. I said, sure. I just walked from my apartment to the show sure. and then she let's do next Tuesday. And then, uh, we didn't realize <laughs> we'd end up going for, almost two years playing wow. Tuesdays there. And it wasn't a residence. It wasn't an announcement or anything, but we just absolutely had a blast doing it and loved doing it. Obviously not for, for the mummy or anything, but um, uh, it, it is just a real artist environment and, and everybody there has a, a deep love of music and art and, and especially Flanagan who, who's, you know, has a vast knowledge of all things music. So, yeah. So what's the deal with Flanagan? Like he's obviously like, I've heard his name both in the comedy world and, and in the music world, especially like as just like a, a guy that's so important to, to so many musicians around the LA scene. And I know that he's been booking Largo, but, but um, did he specifically have an interest in the kind of music you guys were doing or was he just like a huge supporter or what, what's his deal exactly? He's an amazing dude. Yeah, he is. I mean, I think he owns Largo, both of them, but he, um, he, he doesn't book anything that he doesn't love. He's, he's into it for the love of music. And so, um, he, you know, he'll, he'll turn down, you know, big, big names if he's, 
if he's not into what they're doing, he's just, it's really about the love of of the music for him. So it's very, he's very supportive, but he's, you know, he's not like a a record exec or anything. He just, he just absolutely loves music and loves the art of comedy and, you know, uh, and, and supports, supports what he loves basically. So. I can't ever remember him not being in a picture. I've, been, I've known him for so long. It's hard to know. Yeah. I, can't, I couldn't tell you when I first met him, but he's been around just forever as a lover of music, you know? And does it happen a lot that you play there? I mean, I, I don't know if it's still to that extent, but it seems like through the late 90s and, and early 2000s, there was so much stuff going on there. Like, was it all kind of unscheduled and things were ha- like, I know John Bryan had a weekly thing there, but but were there, was there all kinds of stuff? Like, would you just sort of get a call a, a day or two out saying, Hey, we're doing a show at Largo and things would sort of just pop up. Is that what was happening there too? I think in the old days, yes, definitely. I, I don't play there as much as I used to play there, but in the old days, yeah. you, you know, I just get a call like, Hey, I'm doing a show. I want you to sit in. And if somebody came to often musicians would come to a show and they would just, Oh, what's the space here? Get up here. This is a new minor. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I saw that happen many times there in the old. I went to the old place quite a bit because I was uh, I was down in LA like in the early two thousands fairly often, and uh, I'd go to Largo. That's sort of that was where I would hang out and and go to see stuff. And it was often like John Bryan was there, and then you know Matt Chamberlain. I saw you hop up there a few times, Greg Lease, and it was just like a really eye opening experience for me. I lo- I loved being a fly on the wall. That's for sure. Yeah, me too. I really did, and I loved the. <laughs> I love the peril. I mean, I, I loved it and didn't love the peril of like, somebody just going, get up here and like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's an easy, this is an easy song. It's got 76 chords. Follow me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I noticed the piano there, the piano in the new place. I think we talked about this really briefly, but the piano in the new place is the same. It's like a tack piano that's been, that was in the old place too. And that's sort of been around forever, right? Like you must have a, a sort of a funny relationship with that piano. I, I do. I mean, it is... I, I kind of love it and I kind of hate it <laughs> as a piano, but it has, you know, I have to say it sounded better in the old lager just because it had a little more, it, it is, it is dying. It's an old piano, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the hammers are literally, some of the hammers, the felt is so flat that it's actually the wood, not the felt hitting the string on, on some of the higher notes. It literally looks like somebody filed off the felt. That's what makes uh, it I, cool, though, too, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of cool, but um, <laughs> sort of not, <laughs> sort of tinny at the same time. But I do love yeah. the piano. I, I do love the piano. I love the history of it. I think it's just the move. I, I think it's just kind of being held together with spit and glue. I mean, I think the I think the technician said, "Don't even move it any place <laughs> off of the uh, around the room. It's just going to fall apart." <laughs> so just, just, I think it's literally glued to where it is right now, and there it's going to sit. Oh my god. Yeah, uh, but it but it that has a wonderful history. I, mean, I used to, I used to, I I played so many shows on that piano. Well, let's talk about um, your your instruments a little bit, and particularly, I mean, you got to be known as like the Chamberlain guy, and um, I mean, I know what a Chamberlain is, but I would love to maybe just talk a little bit about the instrument itself and um, sort of clue people into. Uh, well, I, I I'm gonna probably like at the beginning of this episode, I'll probably get people to. Uh, look it up for themselves so we don't have to do the total basics. But it would be cool to hear um, what I'm interested in knowing is the general overview of the instrument, but also the differences between the Chamberlain and the Mellotron. Well, the the Chamberlain was the precursor to the Mellotron. It, 
yeah. Harry, Harry Chamberlain, a guy named Harry Chamberlain who lived in Upland, California, invented the whole concept of a taped keyboard instrument where, uh, for those who don't know you, it has a keyboard like a piano or anything, but when you depress a note, under the note is an actual miniature reel of tape that plays across a tape head and just plays recordings of, that were on the tapes already. So it's a very mechanical instrument. It had some of the motors that ran the capstans were actually from refrigerators, I believe, like refrigerator really? motors. <laughs> yes. And um, and the idea is like when you take your hand off the key that the tape actually rewinds then too, right? It, it rewinds very fast. And in that way, it's not a loop. It's, it has a fast re rewind function. So it's got two right. motors going different directions and a sort of a tension reel setup. But that way you could have percussive sounds like steel guitars and stuff, a, a thing with an attack. Yeah. Um, and the tapes were eight seconds long. So if you played, if you held enough for the full eight seconds, of course, it's going to take a little bit longer for that to rewind itself, but it's pretty fast. Right, uh, right. You, you could play fast passages and it would actually, I mean, when you see how it's made, you're, it's a miracle it ever held together. And then Mel Mellotron <laughs> uh, sort of got that patent and made a version and mass marketed it. And it has a little bit of a thinner sound, but very recognizable from records like King Crimson and, uh, everybody used them, Boeing, uh, Beatles, you know, Beatles, of course, yeah. the beginning of the beginning of, of um, Strawberry, Strawberry Fields, Fields. Yeah. the most iconic use of it. Yeah, so I, I never owned a Mellotron, never played a Mellotron, but I had three or four, uh, four. One time I had four Chamberlains. So, wow. Each one, each one only held eight sounds. Uh, I think I have three left. <laughs> How do you swap the sounds around? We, do you have to physically take the tapes out and switch them? Well, yes. Uh, on a, in the case of a chamber, it's quite a procedure. You had to tape by tape. You had to sort of pull the tape out, undo a rivet. Oh my God. Put a piece of masking tape against the new tape, thread it through. It would, it would be like a two hour procedure on, on the Mellotron. It was just a rack that you just changed. It was much easier, but the Mellotron only held three sounds. Whereas the Chamberlain held eight, uh, instruments. It was a half inch, eight track tape format. Oh. Um, so you could have eight, you know, violins and flutes and cellos and eight and, you know, five other things that you love. All going at the same time. No, it was a stereo tape head. So you only could, you could have your choice of two things going at the same time. The, act, okay. the actual the actual tape head, if you looked at it, came. Uh, it was the exact same head that was in an eight track cartridge, which okay. very few people will remember. But that was a format that existed in car stereos for a while. Uh, sure. But it's it's the head that that's the head that just thirty five of those heads, literally airplane glued to a railing that slid back and forth <laughs> on a. How would you switch the sounds? Was there a button? Was there a button or a bank of buttons that that would uh, activate the different tape sounds? So you had, so you had all those tape heads glued to a railing, and then you had like a little shift mechanism that would move the move the heads. The tape stayed stationary, but the, oh. but the uh, but the head poles would move. So you you could move from track one and three to two and four to three and five. You you moved like that with oh, one in okay. the middle. And also, cool. you, you you planned your tapes, like if you, for instance, you'd like the violins and cellos to play together. You'd put those on tracks one and three, and that way you knew they would they would be able to play together. And then two and four, you might have you know flutes and trumpets or some some combination that you liked. Um, so, so if you, you had two sounds queued up, 
was it just splitting the keyboard in half and one was one and the other was the other? Is that how it worked? Or No, it's an actual stereo, not stereo per se, but like there's two outs. So you have two. Oh, oh I see. Okay. Two, two outputs. So you can, you know, do what you want with them. Um, right, right. The, two, two mono outs at the, and then you just plug them in. I, I had to get, I had to buy a stereo volume pedal. Like they actually make those for two outs and uh, uh, run it to whatever you're running it to. So crazy so i've never yeah. i mean i've seen lots of mellotrons and i've played mellotrons and had them around but i've never seen a chamberlain are they are they physically smaller than a mellotron uh they are physically smaller the, the one i use the m1 the mellotron sort of went all the way to the ground in a, yeah. you know you, whereas the chamberlain was more something you'd set on a table um oh. it, it didn't have the it didn't have a full it wasn't like a full piece of furniture it was yeah. it was I want to say 22 inches deep and about, you know, 18 inches high or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact dimensions, but um, they were heavy, plenty heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, they were um, smaller. Now, I, I heard that you met Harry Chamberlain, like the guy that invented them. Did you did you have some relation with him? Oh, I knew him very well, yeah. I uh, Back in the day when he was alive, I would he would make me tapes. Um, really? Up, yeah, so I would I would go up to his house all the time. And I'd say, I ordered new tapes. I say, I want such and such and such and such. And, um, he had several masters. If I wanted to substitute a certain sound, it was a little bit of a pain in the ass, but he, he would, oh, that's going to cost you 50 bucks. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right, Harry. Uh, and really you need that sound. And so, but he had a way of doing it. We, we never could figure out how he did it. He did it all with these big giant tape machines. Cause the masters were on a one inch, one inch eight track machine, one inch eight track machine, literally. And then he would, the, the tapes were half inch eight track at seven yeah. and a half inch. So, but I knew him, I knew him well. And I, how did you get to know him? Like, how did you know he was alive and where he was? Well, I, I had never, I heard of a chamber when I was in high school, but I'd never seen one. until I actually started working with Michael Penn in the eighties and yeah. he owned, he owned one, but he had it on a shelf enshrined, I am like, what is that? He goes, that's a Chamberlain, but we, we don't play it. It's too valuable and too expensive. So, <laughs> so we, I worked with him for a year before he finally took it down. So let me just hear this thing. What is this thing? And he fired it up and I instantly fell in love with it. And then, uh, bought, so it actually worked. Oh, it worked fine. Yeah, so I bought four more right away. Cause you could still buy them back then. But he, he's the one that told me that when you bought them, you actually would go to Harry's house and pick it up. I mean, that's, he built them in his backyard, literally in his backyard no way. in a garage. His kids built them. His kids, Richard and Patty would Whoa. put those things together. <laughs> that's crazy. So you actually bought brand new ones? Michael did, but then I bought four used ones. Once I um, fell in okay. love with the machine, I just kept buying them up. I just loved them. And uh, went a little, I went a little crazy. <laughs> where did you find them? Like, were they kicking around like pawn shops and music stores or where, like, no, where did you come across this for? Was the, this was the eighties. So you'd find them like on the, what was it? Penny saver or the, I forgot what the, you'd, this is before the internet really. So you'd find them in various rags. Um, yeah. Chamberlain for sale. I forgot what the, what the medium was back then. It wasn't computers. <laughs> so. What kind of price range would they be going for back, back in those days before, before they were like popular again? Oh, like two grand. Okay, so they weren't cheap. They weren't cheap, no. And they were like thirty five hundred new. Yeah. And you'd find them for like you know two two grand, give or take, something like that. And then I would sometimes you'd have to take them in like a uh, to to Richard Chamberlain, Harry's son, and he would, you know, he would 
refurbish it if somebody had left it in a garage or, you know, it was yeah. sometimes people bought them and just let them go to pot. And yeah. he, would, he would clean them up for me and clean the heads and fix fix all the rubber bands that I always needed to do rubber bands. <laughs> <laughs> so was he, was he interested that there was like a whole generation, a new, like a new generation of players that were like suddenly getting really into those things? Did he find that weird? I, I don't think Harry ever quite got that Bowie and the Beatles were using it because he, I think it was more designed as a parlor instrument, like a Lawrence Welke kind of a, it had drum right. machines on it. And, you know, it was yeah, yeah. sort of like a, a, the analog version of what the, the big console organs became in the seventies, you know? Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he would play with something. He would, it would sound like a Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> I don't think yeah, he ever, yeah. I, I don't think he, I don't think Harry appreciated how I mean his kids did, but his kids got how cool it was that the rock guys were using it. But um, I don't think Harry quite ever got how cool it was that. <laughs> and are they still like operational there? Do they still have their garage full of tapes and stuff? No, uh, 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 Richard still has them, the machine. He still has a garage to work on them. Uh, I haven't seen uh-huh. him in five years or so, but uh, if I would bring one in, he'll he'll still work on it for me. If I kind of stand there with him and coax him along, otherwise he just would, you know. <laughs> but his, yeah. he he still has the lathe and the really you know, all the all the things that he needs to make parts and everything like that. Um, but it, he is the last. Uh, he is the last person that knows how to do that. I mean, uh, after right. him, that's it. You know, it's just people who have a knowledge of him, but he has the, the original tooling and all that stuff, you know. And so when you ordered custom sounds and stuff, he would literally like he'd pull out the, so he had the master recordings on a, on a one inch tape of yeah. whatever instrument there was. He would pull yeah. those out and what sort of things would you be asking for? Like weird mixes of instruments or like different EQ or like what kind of things did you want that you couldn't find? Oh no! It just it was a combination thing. So he had on on the one inch master, he had three main masters on that one inch reel of tape. So you had okay. you, you had your choice of three sets of eight instruments. But if I wanted to substitute one of the eight instruments, like say I needed I need like the girls' choir to be on uh, on a track that wasn't on the regular master, just a combination of sounds that wasn't one of the one of the three main ones. He he yeah. could substitute it. But it wasn't okay. it, it, just the regular sounds. It just I needed different combinations. If I was doing a tour, I used to actually tour with Fiona Apple and drag two of those around on stage. Yeah, and I, right. would, I, I would need two. I would need you know one set of sounds on one box and one on the other. I needed them to be specific, uh, specific to songs and stuff. So he, I would make substitutions. He must have thought you were crazy. Yeah, he did. I mean, I don't know what he thought of me, but I eventually learned how to make it myself. I mean, I eventually. He he passed away in uh, I think eighty nine somewhere around eighty nine and I went to the estate I went to Richard and I said what are you going to do with all the um, all his master libraries and he sold them to me he sold me the the entire collection of everything he'd ever made uh, which was all on like either quarter inch full track or some of it was a uh, was a uh, one inch eight tracks they're all kinds of formats crazy. So I archived everything he ever made, and I found tons of sounds that never made it to any Chamberlains. And and wow. I also got to know him posthumously just hearing the recording sessions. Some for some reason the talkback mic would re- going back and forth was recording both ways. You'd hear you'd hear Harry talking to the players like, "Yeah, don't 
do it again. It's all, it's all flat. And he, as you were blowing these notes, like chromatically. <laughs> that is bananas. Yeah, it's true. So it was he, really bananas. So he actually, like, was he in a studio in LA doing that, like in the 50s or 40s or something? Like when? Well, partly studio, but partly, if you, uh, as I listened to the tapes, I would hear, I'm sure it was his bedroom because I could hear cars going by and, and I could hear. <laughs> I could, I swear to God, I could tell the engine, like that's a straight 657 Chevy, like with a column shift. Like you could sort of hear the, what car was going by and what year that car would have, you know, oh would have God. been. <laughs> so yeah. You can almost tell what year he was working. <laughs> that's incredible. So, yeah. so let's just jump over to what you mentioned, which was touring with Fiona Apple. Um, a good buddy of mine who I played with for years, Keith Lowe, was in that band too. So I guess Keith is my dear friend, were, of course. Yeah, Keith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keith told me a bunch of a bunch of crazy stories about that tour. But um, so you had two Chamberlains because uh, you needed that many sounds. Is that why you had two of them? Uh, I can't remember if I had two on stage. I took two out with me. I probably had one on stage. Uh, sometimes I would leap, leapfrog them, or I would do, if I had to do a radio show one morning, I would, I would send one to the oh, one to okay. the stage and one to the radio show. Um, right. I, and I had a and I had a Wurlitzer. I can't remember what else I had. Then probably a regular keyboard rig, you know, with uh, with like a, a Kai samplers would have been the probably would have been the thing of the time that I would have been right. using. And and did you like when you're playing the Chamberlain, you're able to manipulate the tapes too, right? Like you can bend notes and like phrase and stuff like that by like actually touching the tape, right? Well, it, I did, but I did it essentially. The, the there's a giant flywheel, which what really what it is, it's a huge sideways capstan. If you, if you know what a capstan is on the tape recorder, yeah. So it's it's just a giant capstan with a, with a long drive shaft that goes across all the tapes. So okay. I, I I actually drilled a hole on the top of the Chamberlain so I could stick my hand in and just um, I drag it on the flywheel, which would you could slow it down and make bends. You can't speed it up, but you could you know, sweep into notes and bend it. It became very expressive with sounds like cool. pedal steels or even even um, clarinets and stuff. You, you could just make you could get very expressive. Uh, it's kind of a lovely sound. I, I don't know why I started doing. I just started doing that one day and realized it was a style that I liked playing. So I, I drilled holes in all the chamberlains, including, including Michael's. <laughs> Did John Bryan play in the band too? Like, were you guys both playing Mellotrons and Chamberlains at the same time? Uh, John Bryan and, and I did the uh, that first record title uh, yeah. together. I played most of the Chamberlain, although he played Chamberlain on Criminal, which was a big hit. And I played yeah. piano on Criminal. Everybody thinks it's Chamberlain. I, I'm playing Chamberlain. That's actually John Bryan on played the Chamberlain Criminal, but most of the record I played Chamberlain, John played all kinds of beautiful stuff, vibes and guitars yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and whatnot. He actually produced, I think, the next two Fiona records after that. He's a multi-instrumentalist. I can't even remember all the things he played. <laughs> so, yeah, he plays a few things. I've, yeah, I've seen him play yeah. them all. Yeah, you, 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 you know, you've seen him play. Yeah, he did this. Yeah, basically, <laughs> that's how he was on the Fiona record. <laughs> this was great. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about those records? Because they're like to me, they they not only encapsulate a, that time of of LA production that I'm so much a fan of. That's that's like you know you and Michael Pan and John Bryan and and that whole scene is is really inspiring to me. But but also those records like Title and and When the Pawn and they sort of encapsulate those that that time to me. I, I'm just wondering, like, how those sessions would have gone. Like, were they pretty experimental? Were you were you spending a lot of time there, like, 
messing around with different sounds and stuff or were they kind of quick sessions where you're in and out the door before you knew it or how did that all go down not quick <laughs> okay <laughs> um we were using we were definitely using 24 track tape so we had so many slave reels it was incredible i mean we just really oh my god four or five reels for a song sometimes uh wow. so very experimental always trying things um you know late into the night um yeah some some things got recorded initially quickly like the the um the initial inspiration for a song would with the drums especially the drums and the piano and the would get put down very fast but we would spend lots of time experimenting with sounds and having mm -hmm. everybody you know let's get a saw player to come in and bow a saw anything we could think of you know we had the budget back then there was just no right there, there was, was no, no uh, different time <laughs> so how long approximately would you spend on a record like that back in those days i would guess um three months or something you know on oh, and shit. off you know i mean That's not amazing. straight but like you know we would be yeah. able to see there for weeks and weeks yeah. uh it's just a a wild guess, you know, I'm not working every day, but just, you know, different things, different days and, yeah. you know, sitting back and listening and experimenting and she'd write another song. And, um, you know, she was literally 17 years old when we started, just had, just had yeah, turned 18 in, in the title. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think she wrote criminal and I think she wrote that in one night. Like we kind of got out to dinner and she came back and she had the idea and we yeah. recorded it. And that was that we kept that initial track Amazing. so that part got done fast and then everything else was just us having fun yeah. uh you know and was she like as a as a late teen was she like into the whole experimental thing or was she just not was she like involved in that or was it more like you and john bryan and the, the other musicians involved like who was sort of spearheading all the craziness i would say john was spearheading the energy of the craziness and matt chamberlain like both of them were i mean i was definitely along <laughs> for the ride because i loved doing it yeah. but but uh, they were super excited, experimental. Matt was making loops, and you know yeah. they were. We were just trying everything. I mean, John, John had. I don't know if he still has it, but he had a literal warehouse of instruments, and we actually had. That's what I hear. One, we had moved them to Sony at one point, so we they were all available while we were making that record. I mean, it was kind of an overwhelming. They were like in the next room over. You'd open the door and you'd see like nine thousand keyboards. <laughs> so I, and like literally passed to try and get through everything to try and find something. Wow. So it was, it was a fun, fun, very experimental time. I don't know how much Fiona was to answer your question, how much she was interested in that part of it. She was mm -hmm. sort of maybe, maybe more like amused. <laughs> she was there though. She was there, but you know, I don't yeah. know. She was Just rolling there. her eyes at you guys. Yeah, probably. <laughs> 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 and so how how did you and John navigate the whole like two keyboard player? I mean, you're very different players and obviously one guy had sort of a keyboard approach and one guy had a textural freako approach with Chamberlain's and fucked up noises and stuff, but but who like how did you um orchestrate who was going to do what in the band or or was it song to song or was it just John needed another wingman there that and you happened to be the perfect person for it? I think it just all fell together. I mean, the producer and Andy Slater called us all in. So he was the ringleader of the whole thing. Yeah. And he called us all in to do our thing. And I just, we just kind of gravitated towards what, whatever we grab. I mean, I'm always going to play keys. I don't play guitar. John played a lot yeah. of guitar on that. Uh, but there was right, never, it was never even, there was another, I 
nothing to even figure out. We just would grab things and because of the nature of, of who these players are, there's an automatic sort of a hyper listening experience to what like everybody's listening to to each other so intently that nothing needs to be said as far as what, who's playing what or what part goes with what we just all, it just, it just appeared instantly like as, as a, as a sort of an arrangement as we, you know, proceed through. Yeah. And then you went on the road with her. Were you comfortable on the road or was that something that you sort of got dragged into? Like, I, I don't really know you as a road musician, but you seem to do quite a bit of touring with her. Oh, I did a lot. I did almost two years straight with her, but I, I'm definitely a road person. I'm very, very road worthy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've done many tours since then. Uh, and yeah. I, I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. I mean, uh, it was, uh-huh. it was, you know, she, she's wild and, and uh, she has no, um, uh, she's a beautiful person and that she has no filter on what she's thinking or saying. It doesn't, it just comes out and it's uh, fun to watch, but it's, it's a wonderful, dangerous energy when she sings that just captivated uh-huh. people. I mean, we, yeah. I think we started on a little affair and we had the, we got the opening slot on the main stage, which nobody wanted because it was like four o'clock and the sun was still right. up or something. But, um, and back then when a little, little fair had started, I think there was, you know, 25,000 people would show up to that thing. And some of uh-huh. the, it was really popular and yeah. there wouldn't be an empty seat when she was singing. The whole place would just fill up. Right. Uh, they were just absolutely amazed by her. And then we would be lucky because we could get off the stage and go to the next venue. Everybody else had to wait till the end of the show. <laughs> so, right, right. So we were like, see ya, uh, have fun. Yeah, perfect. Was that like before the first record came out? Like was she pretty much unknown and people were just kind of freaking out hearing her for the first time or was, no, was I think, the record I, out already? I, I think title is out. I mean, I think she and it, it had a okay. hit. I mean, that's how we ended up on the A stage instead of one of the tinier B stages or whatever. So Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I remember Keith telling me that that at the time she was going out with PT Anderson and uh I mean, I don't know if you remember him being around, but I would imagine he was around. Is it was that part of the 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 pathway for you to get into soundtrack work for some of his movies? Uh, yes. I, he, I got to know Paul and he, he was a big fan of, of, of Fiona's and also incidentally of Amy's. And, uh, so I got, I got to know him. He actually, um, uh, I think was it, uh, they, he did a movie called hard eight way back yeah, in the day. That and that was, that was, um, jo- that was John Bryan and Michael Penn that scored that. And I played on that. Then came Boogie Nights, and uh, same deal. I think it was John and Michael. I'm not sure, and I ended up noodling on that record, on that too. And then, uh, then he got to know Amy, and uh, when when he made Magnolia, he actually put me as an actor in the movie. Uh, You're in that unfor- movie. Unfortunately, yes, I am. <laughs> Where? Which? Which part are you? There's a there's a game show that goes throughout the whole movie. These kids yeah. against th- three adults. I'm one of the three adults. I'm sitting next to, um, really? uh, yeah, it's, Chris, I can't Chris watch show it. Donnie. What's his name? Yeah. Chris show Donnie something or other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't even watch it. Cause I, I look like a deer in the head, a deer in the headlights, which I think is what he wanted. <laughs> so you, got, you definitely got that. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm next to Luis Guzman and he's so funny that I can't even act fake act because he just makes me laugh. You're just trying <laughs> not to crack up the whole time. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was he's crying. A... He just had me crying the whole time. <laughs> he's so good. Yeah. So, but you said that you noodled on those movies, but I, I mean, I know there's more to it than that. But what was the pro- <laughs> what was the the process like for working on a movie like um, Boogie Nights? Like the music is so integral. When I was getting really into music and movies, kind of at the same time, he was like the guy that was making these movies that to me were like the perfect mixture of like amazing sonically wicked music and amazing movies at the same time so so those those films are all huge for me and i'd love to hear about what the what the actual process of like were they completely composed and and you were just coming in to add touches or were you there through the whole process i was there pretty much through the whole process i believe um there's a little um you know at the beginning of boogie nights there's a sort of a circusy theme yeah. And um, I believe that was what he wanted to use was a, a be, the beginning of a Michael Penn song. Let me just think of the name of the song, you know, Bedlam Boys, maybe. And it has a little instrumental instrumental uh, interlude that starts the song. And I, and I actually had written that that start. So I, I, I think for writing purposes, they didn't they didn't because okay. uh, the other people were going to write. So, so Michael, I think, just took the melody. Turn, literally turned it upside down and played it backwards, <laughs> which was oh wow, cool. totally fine, totally fine with me. But uh, yeah. P- Paul was joking on on um, Magnolia. He's like, "Dude, we ripped you off." <laughs> like, You're like, "Yeah, no shit, man." It'll be fine, Paul. <laughs> I got no shit. Um, but it was, but uh, but I, I was, you know, playing on the whole thing. But really, it's it's really, um, you know, Michael and John. They're doing the the genius behind all that cool, that trippy organ stuff and everything. Uh, I think they did a great job. And Michael, uh, he's a great writer. I think he even wrote a song for Hard Aid, a, Chris, a beautiful Christmas song um, that's sung in, I can't remember, but I believe it's actually in that movie. He's also okay. a great, Michael's a great songwriter in addition to being a, yeah. a great film composer. So, um, Were you tracking music to finish picture? Or were you guys like experimenting at the same time as Paul was making the movie? I think I remember, I remember playing to picture, but I was so new to that whole setup, you know, I mean, uh, that, I mean, uh, but I did actually develop a few habits from that because I I remember them struggling with like trying to put a click track against the picture to make it come out. Right. And I said, fuck it. Just let me play this. (laughs) Just run the, turn off the click and I'm just playing the bastards and I would just play. Okay. It's fine. (laughs) And to this day, I rarely use it click against picture i just don't like it <laughs> okay cool that's good to know yeah i like hearing that <laughs> um, man i hate click i hate click for everything especially you know uh, songs but you, i even take it out of the scoring process even though it would make my life easier i just take it out <laughs> talking about a, a movie specifically let's let's talk about magnolia for a second because that one um that one's so married between the music and the film like he's shooting entire scenes based around Amy Mann songs. And so I don't know the chronology of it, but I think her record bachelor number two had already come out and had a bunch of the songs and he wanted those songs in the movie. Is that, is that how that worked? Or were you guys like recording those songs at the same time for the movie? Well, no, both. I actually, we were making bachelor number two and he was, he had befriended Amy and, um, was absolutely mesmerized by these songs. So it was all kind of happening at the same time. Like as the record is being made, he's like, Oh my God, he's writing this movie and uh, these songs should be in the movie. So the record hadn't been released 
and I think it all kind of happened simultaneously. He was he was at a lot of the recording sessions for okay. Bachelor Number Two, yeah. and uh, some songs went to the record, and some songs went to the soundtrack. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it, it was it was a it was a fun process. But he was definitely, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, some of the actual dialogue in in uh-huh. Magnolia is, is literally lyrics from Amy's music. Yeah. So. And then, of course, that thing at the end, if I got, yeah, you're right, wise up, where everybody's mouthing the, um, uh, that's pretty, pretty brilliant scene. I can't think that's, nothing's like that's been done before. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, uh, no. And and so was that all recorded music by the time he started making the movie or was, or like was that song being brought to him and he was like holy shit we got to put this into the film like wh- I think it had been done because what I do remember that um there's a video somewhere that exists of of Amy Mann singing Wise Up and she's literally in every scene of the movie. So as oh, they wow. were making okay. as they were making the movie as they would shoot the scene, they would stop the scene and all the actors would hold, hold place. Uh, and then Annie yeah. would step into the actual scene and sing shit. a verse or two from, from the song. I actually remember driving her up to one of those scenes. We were, I drove her up and got to hang out with Tom Cruise and talk, you know, sure. <laughs> it's a really nice guy. <laughs> uh, so it was just, so I, I have a thing. All the music had been done and decided by that point. So can you tell me a bit about the making those records with Amy Mann? Cause those for me too, are like sonically incredible records. Her songs are like really remarkably strong. Uh, she, she seemed to be pretty prolific in those years. Um, were you making those records in a similar kind of way of like long, pretty long sessions and really experimental or they seem a bit more concise and like maybe they were done quicker or something, but I have no idea. I think they were more concise and done quicker, but, but still uh, experimental, like still, we still have time to mess around in the studio. Um, but we, we seem to have a pretty, um, it was, it was less, tracks let's put it that way it wasn't like right nine thousand tracks of stuff to cipher that we would kind of try things and make decisions and let's double that that's a great sound and encourage each other it was a very nurturing sort of environment where you know somebody would play a solo and we would encourage them to you know yeah that's it uh-huh. that's the one <laughs> yeah, if they cool. if they felt shy about something and vice versa so uh it was done pretty quick and pretty concisely in a studio somewhere in LA. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I do remember the sessions. 
was that Michael Lockwood? Was he producing that record, or, or was it John Bryan? I think it was Lockwood. I have a feeling it was Michael Lockwood, or I don't know. He was definitely playing all, all the songs. So yeah, I, yeah. I, that's why I think it was him. But you know, yeah. Those, if not, he those, did the one right after. He did one of those records, but um, you know, or maybe maybe just was Amy producing it herself. I don't remember. But Michael Lockwood was playing on all the all, tracks. He was it was myself, Lockwood, John Sands, and I I don't know. Well, Amy probably was playing bass, and so that yeah. would have been about it. So when you get called in to make a record like that, like I don't like you weren't actually in her band, were you? Um, not at that time, I don't think. I mean, I think right after that, I ended up touring with her for many years, but I can't yeah. remember. I, just, <laughs> I get foggy in the sequence of events. If you get called in for a record like like in those days, uh, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, for somebody like Amy Mann, who who. I'm guessing you knew at that point, but maybe you hadn't worked with. Would you bring all your shit? Like, what did you show up to the studio with? Everything. I'd bring Everything. all the shit for sure. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't have that much. I, I didn't have a John Bryan collection. I could fit in it in one car, but I would bring, you know, f- four Chamberlains, uh, or, yeah. or every, everything I had, I, I would, I would bring for sure. Uh, so you jam it all in there. You set, you set up and, and how do you approach playing with somebody like that? You know, she's got, like these incredible songs, how do you like to get into, you know, what you're going to do? Do you like to follow what the producer says? Do you like to just jump in and play and sort of like try things out? Um, what's your process? The you, latter. I mean, I think the reason those records are so good and why I enjoy hearing them later is it was, there was a, a spirit of um, having fun. It was very unserious when mm-hmm. we made those records. Like we were just all, in a sense, kind of goofing and everybody had a really funny sense of humor. Like, you know, what this needs is more fucking melodica. You know, we, we try it and we're <laughs> like, Hey, let's double that. You know? <laughs> so there was a, you know, can't have too much melodica. Like it just, everybody just had a sort of a casual, funny attitude and a real sense of humor that pervaded yeah. all the sessions. And I think that's why those records come out so good. They do. I think sense of humor when you're making music is maybe the most important factor for me. It's yeah. weird that such beautiful music and such emotion moving music can come from that, but it does. It, it, they are related, like sense of humor and emotion, emotional music. They, they go hand in hand. Um, uh, yeah. When it gets, when you get real serious, it just, I think the life of the music dies and, and Amy's songwriting is so, beautiful and somehow quirky sounds against it makes sense. I, I don't know why, but they, you know, a, a more unconventional sound like a, an accordion or something stupid can really just sound beautiful against her voice and her, her songs. In those days, when you hit the road, you would take your Chamberlain's and probably Wurlitzer and whatever else. Um, I, I assume you don't do that anymore. Is that true? Like if you were going to go and do some touring with somebody, do you still travel with those instruments or have you figured out some way to, to make it a little easier on yourself? <laughs> well, I definitely don't travel with chambers anymore. In fact, I haven't even really busted one out in four years. Uh, oh, I wow. think, they, or maybe I've busted them up for one session, but they generate just in storage now. Um, uh-huh. I, I think I put that sound on so many records over the years that I, it came a point when I just didn't want to put it on any more records. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I understand. Uh, I mean, it's a, it, for me, it, I, I'm so familiar with those, those 16 or 24 sounds that I just, it's, I hear one half a second of it. I go, Oh, it's Chamberlain. I just know what it right. is. And I'm, I'm always, I'm interested in new, 
kinds of things now. But I'm every, I'll bust one out every once in a while, and it'll make sense on a on a song. They do have a sound, but I don't carry them live anymore. I think um, the last tour I did was uh, a jazz thing with um, Diana Krall, and I ended up taking the real B3, but everything else was in the sort of the sample world. And then I would bring a pump organ, uh, an SD pump organ, which you can't really fake that with samples. It's just too, right. too nuanced of an instrument. What about with Tom Waits? Were you when you played with him? Like you, you did a a couple record. Like, are you on Mule Variations or what was your recording history with him? Uh, the first thing I did with him was a tour, the Glitter and Doom tour. It's a big okay. tour he did. Last tour he did, this fact, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and we uh, ended up. He wanted to do his whole catalog, so we ended up picking close to seventy songs. I want to say and learned them all in four weeks. Wow. And um, then he would just sh- shuffle cards every night pick you know 15 songs Amazing. for the night and hopefully yeah. we'd remember them <laughs> so, but uh but he was he, he was very um cool with technology like i when i went to to rehearse i brought all the old stuff up chamberlains and whatnot and he, he was totally fine with just computers and um you know all all the sounds exist on, on my computer and i i transferred them to obviously to sample world and stuff like that and he was totally fine with that we just would put a sheet over a blanket over the computer so it didn't look too too techno Modern. on stage yeah and we put yeah. the we put the uh, keyboard inside an old uh spinet frame so it looked cool okay. but he but yeah. he was he's totally down with technology he even uh wanted to make a sample of his voice making a bumblebee sound so i actually sampled him chromatically and made a instrument out of him <laughs> so, really but yeah he so he, he and we would stamp and smash the walls with sticks and record stuff just to have it and we would actually use it on the uh you know on the tour so he's he's totally hit the technology what was that what was that tour like was it all over the world or or just in certain parts of the states or how how big of a tour was that it was a big tour but unfortunately it wasn't long enough for me it was the best tour i've ever done in my life i think just in terms of just i'm such a fan already and to be able to sit in the front row just watch him sing every night but we did i think uh we did I want to say six weeks and half of it in the States, half of it in Europe. In the States, he picked odd cities like, you know, Mobile, Alabama and Jacksonville. Anywhere he would go would sell out. People would just drive to see him. He already knew that. So he decided on purpose to to avoid big cities in the States so that some of the people in the other parts of the States could see him. Um, And then Europe was more traditional big cities. We started in San Sebastian and worked our way up ended up yeah. in uh, Dublin and England and whatnot. And those are all just an amazing show, amazing theatrics because Kathleen, is, his wife, is uh, was running, you know, designing amazing. stage. And also, but he has so many fans from uh, movies that, like, uh, set guys were making him stuff. You know, it's just like an incredible, really incredible show. And what was he like as a as a musical boss? Like, was he directive to you, or did he just sort of leave you to your own devices? Uh, he's first of all, he's the sweetest guy in the world, which made me was really happy to, to know that because sometimes you meet your heroes and they're not. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> but yeah. he's just the sweetest, complete family guy. He had his whole family out. He had his son playing drums, Casey. His daughter was doing wardrobe. His then fourteen year old son Sullivan was doing merch <laughs> and wow. he, he liked having his family around. Kathleen of course was there. And, um, 
but he really cared a lot about the show. I mean, as, as loose as he is on stage, he's just an, a really energetic person. We would, Kathleen would write, you know, pages of notes after each show, like, really this let's let's change the lights on this song notes for everything and i would love to get them and she was surprised that i was interested and we would review every day we do a sound check and review what happened the day before and how can we yeah how should we end that song and what should we do with this and that and so we were always you know he really cares about what's happening and um uh consequently makes you makes you care too so uh but yeah, but he's not uh, like a mean boss or anything, but he's definitely, you know, aware of what's Involved. happening. Yeah. But once you're, if you're playing a solo or something, he doesn't, he's, you know, he's not going to tell you what to do. He's just to go at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there a, a musical director uh, of that tour? Like, was there somebody sort of in, in charge of the, the band end of things? I don't think so. I mean, a little bit by default, I was a little bit in that role in that I was, he would call me up at night and say, could you make a chart for such, for these three songs? I want to try to add these to the set or something. And I would take okay. it upon myself to make a, a quick chart for everybody to, to, to have. But um, other than that, I think, you know. And so does he just, is he not dig being out touring? Is it just not his thing? Like that was, I don't know. What was that? 15, 16 years ago or something. That it was, was 2008. 2008. <laughs> okay. So 12, so thir- 12, 13 years. What's his deal? I don't know. I, I I think he really enjoys touring, but um, uh-huh. maybe maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I mean, he he seems he really enjoyed being out there and had a blast doing it, and yeah. just um, but uh, I I don't I I couldn't tell you. Maybe he's more into acting now, or I mean, he yeah. I talked to his uh, engineer a while back. I did a record with him, and I said, "Is he ever going to tour?" And he said, "He said, yeah, he keeps talking about it. You know, maybe." <laughs> <laughs> and he's still running around his studio recording songs and poetry yeah. he was uh, being my friend said he was banging on the walls with his fist making beats and, and recording poetry and stuff so like right. you know he he's he's just a creative powerhouse he's always up to something you yeah, know yeah. but can we just jump back for a second just tell me a bit about your your childhood and your and growing up around music like obviously the chamberlain was one of the first things that grabbed your attention in a really creative way and it sort of was the hallmark hallmark of your career but you must have started out as just a a regular old piano player or something as a kid, right? Like how did you get into music in the first place? I started piano lessons at the age of, you know, six or seven. I hated it. And then uh, <laughs> somewhere around the age of like 13 or 14, uh, my mother said, you've been practicing piano now and you're, uh, you're old enough to make your own decisions. So you can quit if you'd like now. Nice. Uh, there was three of us kids and two of the kids quit. And I had, I thought about it for a minute. I said, well, maybe I'll just keep going with this. And uh, then I immediately I heard um, like Mad Dogs, the Englishman, and Leon Russell. Like you could play rock piano. Like that occurred to me. Like that's pretty cool. Then I started to practice more seriously, and I got a little better at my instrument. I was just kind of you know being pushed along without any drive. But then at that point, when it was my decision, I, I got some drive and got into you know learning various Leon Russell licks and. <laughs> He was he was a big one for you, Leon Russell. He was a big one, yeah. Just the yeah. he and um, uh, yeah, because that was been the early seventies. You know, Wakeman, prog rock, all that stuff, uh-huh. all the stuff that, especially all the stuff that Wakeman played on Hunky Dory. I thought was just amazing. Those were my influences back then. Um, were you into shopping. Were you into into blues pianists and stuff too, like Otis Spann and people like that, or 
not so much. Was it more the rock? I wasn't back then. More, I started off in more in a prog rock sort of a world. I don't know yeah. why. Okay. Um, yeah. I've changed many times over the years, but that's where I sort of started. Then I ended up at um, Cal Arts for three or four years studying you know, sort of avant-garde, atonal music and or or proper oh. classical music. Uh, before they had a jazz department, this is before Charlie Hayden was there. Um, and then, uh, then I started working with Michael Penn right after that uh, in a band he had. He wasn't; it was a band for his then girlfriend way back in the eighties. I can't remember what year, but um, that's. I think it was when I was introduced to the Chamberlain. The, the idea of a keyboard not playing a keyboard sound, like not playing a piano or not playing an organ, right. but. The idea of a keyboard playing an orchestral sound really intrigued me because it was a different style of playing. You had to you had to breathe with the instrument. You had to imagine that you were taking a breath if you were a clarinet sound or if you were a cello player. You had right. to, you had to imagine the limits of the instrument and and tape. I sort of instinctively tapered my parts to what the instrument, the real instrument, could do. I don't know how I made that connection. This is before samplers existed, so that sort of changed my world with just the idea of, of uh, different sounds, orchestral sounds coming out of, uh, out of a keyboard and really intrigued me. You mentioned that you'd seen it around Michael Penn's house for years before you even got your mitts on it. But like, did you have an outlet for that? Did you have some other keyboard that was sort of doing that for you? Or were you, were you playing any like uh, arps or synths or anything like that, that had, that had orchestral sounds? No, I think I was, I think my main instrument, like I had a, a really, I was into cheesy organs. Like I had a combo okay. organ, an Italian combo organ. Um, nice. I liked, uh, and I had a, I had a Help and Steel and a CP70, which are electric pianos that people don't know. I don't think I'd had a World of Rhodes then. I wasn't horribly into that sound. Um, yeah. And then, uh, just as just as Michael was introducing me to the chamber and letting me play it, also that was almost the birth of samplers. Like the first sampler was an, an, something called an Akai 612, which had literally three seconds of sample time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's all you could get was, so you could record something for three seconds and put it across the keyboard. It was probably as big as a fridge, right? No, it was a rack mat. It was pretty small actually. Okay. But it, it, it used these weird floppy disks, but it was, you know, that, oh, wow. but I, I think I bought every Akai sampler that ever came out after that, every model, uh-huh. You know, then then they put it at a 500 and a 900 and a 950 and an X something or other. I I just every time they make a new one, I would buy it. This is before computers took over the you know the world. So, and so were you playing? Like, did you have bands and stuff that you were touring with at that point? Like as a youngster, or or were you not really doing that? No, the first thing I ever did was with Michael Penn. Michael Penn had a record in. And uh, so two of us toured just without a band. It was like sort of an extended promo tour, dragging a Chamberlain and an acoustic guitar into the uh, station. I almost, oh, yeah. almost kind of pioneered that whole thing. I mean, didn't, I don't know how much existed before we started actually doing that, just walking into every city's version of KRQ and dragging in a Chamberlain and an acoustic guitar and then playing a set and then leaving and on to the next yeah. city. We did that almost for two years straight before we finally got a full band and started touring. With So Michael Penn was the first tour I did. And then from there, I ended up with Fiona and Amy Mann and uh, Tracy Chapman, some others. I can't remember all the, you know, anyway, the wind blew. <laughs> you did some touring with Dylan too, right? No, I, I just did a record, a Christmas record with him. 
I did. Um, That's I, I. I love that record. It's I so crazy. <laughs> it was an absolute uh, blast to make. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about that record because that's so, such a crazy ass record. Like, who did that? Was that just a call that came in? Hey, Dylan wants to do a Christmas record. Be there. Exactly. Well, something like that. I got a call from the manager saying, uh, you know, could you come in for this person who, whose name I'm about to tell you? <laughs> sort of a strange, funny call. Um, uh, yeah. So he says, oh, well, it's Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, I can come in. And he says, you might be there one day. You might be there for a week. We don't know. And I, okay. I got what he was saying. It's like, if, if, if you vibe with him, great. If you don't. And I was, You're gone. I, I, I'm yeah, no hard feelings. I've, I've been through this before. I don't, I'm totally yeah. fine. Whatever happens. So I, I went in it the first day and he had a spin it. And he says, once you play piano, I don't want you to use any sustain pedal. <laughs> like, all right, okay, <laughs> no problem. Uh, and I started playing this, it's going pretty good. And then he turns to me and says, um, do you know anybody that could sing like the Andrews sisters? Yeah. And without missing a beat, I said, yep, I'll have them here in the morning. Um, and they're having, all over that record, whoever you got. Yeah, but I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew I was in L.A. I could pull it off. Like, I knew this, this is right. L.A. There has to be. So I made a call to my brother-in-law, <laughs> uh, Stuart Cole. He's a trumpet player from Edward Sharp. And I said, I need three singers who sing like the uh, Andrew sisters. He says, you call Nicole and call the Diddy Bops and get them in there. So I got them in there the next day, and they absolutely killed it. They were they Making up harmonies on the spot, Dylan's blowing smoke in their face. And they don't care, and they're all singing on one mic, and <laughs> everybody's getting along. So then I ended. So then I was like, "Yeah, you're in for the week." <laughs> it's pretty orchestrated. Like it's not just a super loose. You like you guys aren't fucking around in there. Like it's th- those are some pretty serious arrangements. How how did that all go down? Well, it's mostly just him listening to like you know various versions like of 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 the famous classics, and we would just like let's do this kind of version. So a lot of that's just sort of like somewhat copped off of a uh, off of the you know whatever record we were listening to julie andrews or you know, know lupin <laughs> brothers or whatever version we were hearing he would say like i like this version so we would as fast as possible like he works pretty fast trying to yeah, figure bet. out what are the what the chords are and what you know what the arrangement is and do our and then some of it is just of course not that some of it's just everybody vibing we had hidalgo yeah. we had uh, uh, Fill up church in there, killing it, and we had uh, his regular band. Yeah. So, so would you kind of scribble out a chart based off of some old version, and then and then present it to everybody, and that was what you would go off? Definitely, like uh, we'd sort okay. of know the night, end of the night, like let's do these three songs tomorrow. We'd have an idea of an arrangement. So, I would definitely scribble out a chart the night before, so that I wouldn't be tripping over myself the next day. Um, and then we would hit it. And then was it tracked all live? For sure, yeah. All, there's, I don't so think cool. there's a single overdub on anything. It's just all. Did anyone at any point ever be, say like, "What the hell's going on here? Like, why is he making a, this crazy ass Christmas record?" Nobody said a word. I love that. Blast! I ran into yeah. ran into Jacob Dylan later at a farmate thing, and he uh, he had heard the record, and he said, "Yeah, I heard the I heard the record," and I called my brother up. And I said, uh, "So." I, I thought we were Jewish. Are we not Jewish now? (laughs) 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 Typical deadpan. Jacob Dylan's like one of the funniest guys I know. (laughs) But then after that, Bob called me in. After he finished that record, he got invited to the White House to play uh, a song on a for uh, Obama. And I ended up going along for that ride. Um, 
he he wanted oh, to do amazing. a version. He wanted to do a version of um, uh, the president wanted to do um, Times of Freedom, and he Bob said, I, I think we should do a Times Era change. I, I I think more people know that song. Bob said. I said, Bob Bob, wow. my unborn my unborn child knows that song. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> That's the understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> So we ended up doing a, a kind of a, he, he, I went to his little, had a little apartment thing and he sort of played a piano version. It's kind of a waltzy, Irishy uh-huh. kind of a version he wanted to do. So I, um, originally he wanted me to make a chart. I said, why don't I just play it? Because if you get lost, they're going to follow the chart and they're not going to follow you if it's like an right. orchestra band. So yeah. I said, yeah. So I got, I got to play for Obama with, with Dylan. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that was a fun trip. <laughs> One other record I wanted to ask you about is that Macy Gray album that was so massive that you played on. Um, was that a memorable session for you? I mean, at that point, you must have been doing so many damn records. Like, it's hard to remember specific sessions, I bet. But <laughs> that's a that's a great sounding record, and you play some really cool shit on it. I just wondered if you remembered some things about uh, that session. Uh, that was a blast. Again, that was Andy Slater, so I'd worked with him before, and there was a lot of yeah. my friends, Matt Chamberlain and... Um, I can't remember who else was on that record, but um, uh, it was a little bit, there were a little bit more tracks already existing when we came into that, when I came out of that record. So, um, mm-hmm. and we did it at Sunset Sound and uh, it was totally, again, just nothing but a fun experience and very encouraging environment. Um, but but a lot of tracks because um, every producer has a different style and I, and I don't begrudge any producer, any style of producing, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, however, they like to work is how they like to work and they all make great records. And in, in Andy's case, he likes, he likes to experiment. So there were multiple, multiple tracks of, you know, fun things that we were trying. I I don't envy the mixing process, but. (laughs) (laughs) It's very layered. So it must've been, you were doing a lot of overdubs then rather than like. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of overdubs. Yeah. A few things were live, but there was also a lot of overdubs and, in in more recent times, you've hooked up with a couple of producers that have, I mean, it seems like they've sort of altered the the path of your career because you've worked with them so many, many times, being T-Bone Burnett and Joe Henry. And um, I'm wondering if you could maybe just tell me a, a little bit about working with, with those guys and maybe some differences about how they work uh, in the studio that you've noticed as a, as a musician. Definitely different than uh, my earlier career in that um mm-hmm. the it's mostly with those guys going to be one take yeah. and um it's going to be a, a group of musicians it's almost like a family at this point we all seem yeah. to know each other really well we all have an idea of what we're going to do and um never a click to, to be heard and it's a really in, in all those records it's all about capturing the 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 process of the discovery of the song like there's a certain take you know, first, second, or third, usually that, that is the moment of discovery of what the song is. And that's what we're chasing with, with, uh, with Joe and with, with, with T-Bone. And when we know and we get it, and then we stop, and then that's the one. And um, mistakes and all. Do you feel like you always know, like a lot of the projects that I do are, are similar in that way, that there's, you know, a group of musicians playing together. But it's not always clear to me. It's not like everybody agrees every time do you, do you find that there's a clear cut like oh we got it that time every time no i no i i i'm more in your camp of like i often i don't know like i they'll say like there'll be sort of a consensus 
Yeah. Um, like this is a take. And I'm like, really? It has to take. And then, uh, <laughs> all right. Hey, you know, I'm, and uh, I mean, aside from the fact that I might, um, I might or might not be playing like shit. I try to listen to the overall performance and the vocal <laughs> and everything. Right. And yeah. uh, I go, all right, I, and I'll, I'll live with that. And then the, then when I hear the record finished, I'm like, God, that really was a take. Like I didn't get it, but now I get it. Like that really was absolutely brilliant. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I know sometimes, but it's more like a consensus or like a, I don't want to say a, a democracy, but it's just like a sort of a, a general consensus. And I, I generally, if I'm the only one who doesn't feel it, I'll, you know, I mean, I might voice my opinion. Everybody's opinion counts, but I'll, we just kind of uh, gravitate towards one. And uh, if you can, you have to let your own playing go because sometimes it's yeah. going to suck. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? <laughs> you have to listen through your your shenanigans yeah. and, and, and yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you remember the first session you did for T-Bone? I don't. I think it might have been. I think I've known him since at least 1990 or before. I, it might have been a, probably oh, okay. probably was a Sam Phillips record. Well, he was yeah. married to Sam Phillips back then. I remember doing yeah. a record called Omnipop at uh, uh-huh. Sunset Sound, and I think that might have been one of my first experiences working for him. Because he was a pretty huge, su- successful, like pop rock kind of guy at that point, and then he's evolved into what he is now. Like, did you see him back then as somebody that would have that kind of longevity and would also be such a such an important figure in the production world and, and as an artist? Uh, I, I, there was always a mystery around T-Bone. Like, yeah. like I'm not, I'm somehow, I don't know if I would have seen it coming, but I'm not surprised by it. He's, he's a very uh, mysterious guy <laughs> in that you yeah. don't know where he's going or what he's doing, but he knows where he's going and exactly what he's doing. And yeah. he, he makes, he's driving this big ship right where he wants to go, but he's got, he's driving it with like one foot and a cocktail in his hand <laughs> with, with complete confidence. And I love that and, image. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I never worry about what's, where we're going. Uh, he makes it look easy, but he really is he's really a genius under the hood of what, yeah. of what he's doing. So, and it's always something surprising. I mean, he'll, I'm working with him now on a film and uh, he, came over here and we were struggling with a scene and trying to find the right direction for the music and he just you know out of the blue he's just like just put a rigoletto <laughs> what he says, put up the verde opera and he dropped a few cues from the opera on onto it just as inspiration and it was kind of brilliant uh-huh. i just like i didn't say that coming <laughs> like i don't know if it'll i don't know if we'll use it or not but it's like wow <laughs> you know he, he just has a broad picture of the whole picture <laughs> When he's when he's producing an artist that you're that you're working on and not playing, like I know I guess sometimes he plays guitar or whatever, but if he's just being the producer and, and being back there, what kind of like do you get a lot of feedback from him? And, and like, is he a, is he a really hands on active producer or is he more of like just a a quiet Buddha character that that does things more mysteriously than than directly? I think he's more quiet, but he's intently listening, but he's Definitely, if he calls you in, he already knows what you're going to do. He already knows who you are as a player, right. and he'll just let you finish out what you're doing, what your whatever you, your idea is or your part. You know whether or not he uses it or not, it's up to him. Uh, but it, but he'll he's not going to try and steer you too much as a player. He might steer the song a certain way, or if the song isn't happy, he'll easily just go on to the next song. Well, let's just do another one. You know, he'll just steer the ship that way but he's not gonna he's not gonna hone in on individual players he has a better 
concept for the big picture and the big the big vibe. Right, I mean, right, right. he's a, he's a guy who's willing to record twenty four tracks of instruments, pull all the faders down, to push up two faders, and go. Well, there's your record right there, and then. Sure enough. Interesting. Yeah. You know, they, that's probably half of, um, you know, Old Brother Where Art Thou is <laughs> like, I wonder how many things you're not hearing. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it gives, but it's such a beautifully sparse record. And, and two things to me always sound bigger than 50. It's just, it's more in your face and it's more, you know, it's, it's more tangible. So. Yeah. And so working with him, do you end up doing a lot of overdubs that you think just never see the light of day? Like you're, you're experimenting and things, but he's pulling stuff out at the end and just really getting down to the core of the tracks. He tends to call me in more towards the end of a project. So what I, anything I'm going to put on, oh. I usually end up on a record. Um, yeah. you know, like he called me at the end of raising sands that, that Alison Krauss, uh, rubber plant record. And he just needed a few things. I think I ended up on three or four songs, but because, by that point, he knew the, what was missing. He knew I was the guy that could fill right. it in. I knew all my parts would end up on the, like he was hearing, hearing something missing. You know, I just needed something, something here. So, so he can get specific, but he'll know he'll know the right person to call for the right job. Yeah. You know, in that case, it worked out well. I mean, now I'm mostly in the film world with him, which is a different right. kind of a thing. So, and Joe Henry came out of the T Bone school, and 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 obviously has used the same or a similar group of players over the years. Um, can you tell me a bit about working with him and what you enjoy about him? Like, obviously he's a more of an active artist than T-Bone is and does his own stuff. And, and you guys do gigs together quite often, but um, maybe just tell me a bit about your relation with him and musically what you appreciate about Joe. Well, Joe, first and foremost, is just a dear friend. So anytime mm-hmm. I get to work with Joe, it's like a, it's like a joke. My wife's like, Oh, you're going to work now <laughs> in quotes. <laughs> I know I've seen you guys like, you know, the wine, wine bottles are open and we're just having an absolute <laughs> blast. And we've, and uh, when Joe had a studio in um, Pasadena at this Garfield house over the years, and yeah. we've made, I feel like that so run of almost there. 10 years and however many records we made there, I feel like that's a real sort of an era in, I feel like that too. Like in terms of LA sound and LA, what was happening in that, like maybe 20 years from now, we'll go back and say those 10 years in that type of record that we were making was, was something, I don't know what, but it was definitely something. And it was a voice and yeah. a different kind of record. And those are the most fun sessions I can ever do is anything uh-huh. that Joe's running the ship on. It's, it's always going to be a blast. He really cares deeply about songs and uh-huh. about an artist's vision. If an artist doesn't have a vision or he's not going to make one for them, he'd rather already be dealing with somebody who has an idea of what, what they want to do and help them achieve that. Yeah. But he, because he's such a great songwriter and great lyricist, he's, you know, um, if he's, if he's picking songs for you, he's going to pick some really great ones. If you're, if you're a singer songwriter who doesn't write, if you're a writer, he's going to, you know, Pull help you. you shine a light on whatever it is you're doing for sure. Do you have any favorites from that era of the Garfield house? Like uh, there's so many amazing records. Um, I don't even know. I don't know all of which ones he played on, but I mean, I'm aware of almost everything that, that him and Ryan put out of that place. And I'm sure you're on most of them, but do you have any favorites that, that you really think encapsulate that time and place more than anything else? Yeah. I mean, three, I could say three of my favorites. Um, let's see. Let me just, uh, there's, two Joe Henry, specifically two Joe Henry records that I love. Yeah. Um, Civilian. That's one of my favorites too. Yeah. I love that album. Yeah. And there's a, 
uh, a song on civilians. Uh, I think I think it's called "The Man I I Keep Hid." Yes, and that's on that, there. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah, sure. If you listen to that, listen to that song. We hadn't even set up the mics. Uh, we were just we have a joke that's every session like let's just sketch it out. We're just going to sketch it out, figure out how the song goes. And Ryan Freeland, the engineer, he knows like oh fuck, we got to get the mics up because this is going to be. So he's scrambling as fast as we can and we're sketching it out. And because we're sketching it, we're really, really loose. I mean, I, I, and yeah. some of the piano is actually just me banging out fists on it. And um, you, in the song, you'll hear a door open and close. You hear a door squeak and you hear it open, you hear it close. That's yeah. literally Ryan running in and, and putting a mic on Jay's drum kit. <laughs> take That's has the so take. much spirit to me and we all yeah. knew it we did four more takes after that and like now nah, we can't beat that whatever happened so much to ryan's uh dismay we did a really amazing record with betty levette um there oh yeah one of the last ones we did it really captured something I, i'm not remembering the name of it but it's the last last run that we did there that uh yeah joe did did she think it was crazy what was going on there like working in a house with a bunch of dudes playing weird shit like like it's not really what she's used to right <laughs> well first of all she's a she's a firecracker um I know. Of, of a personality so i got all set up uh and i brought my brand new shiny uh b3 as ready to roll she walks in she goes i don't want any damn b3 on any of my songs what is it with white people and b3s like first thing she said walking in the door like fuck she didn't even know i had a b3 <laughs> like all right I started playing the B3 because it just sounded good against her. She, her head to come around the corner. She goes, well, you're not playing it like other people, but I really like what you're doing. <laughs> it sounds more like a circus. Keep doing that shit. <laughs> nice. Uh, so it just ended up being a, a record I'm really proud of. Everybody just played really beautifully on it. Jay said something really similar about that, just that she came in and was just like, who the hell is this? Cracker Jack playing the drums. I don't want this yeah, guy yeah. <laughs> before, before she'd ever heard him play or anything. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. She was fun, but she, but she, at the end of the whole run, we just, everybody was in great spirits and cracking yeah. wine every night. And, and uh, you know, we yeah. had an absolute blast. So. I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the soundtrack stuff that you're doing recently. Um, Oh, that's the main one I have going now. It's called the Shy for like Shy Town. I said I did oh, make the same mistake. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, because okay. I said I read that too. The Shi, the Chi. No, it's actually yeah, yeah. the Shy. Um, uh, and this is we, I'm just finishing up the third season of that, and this is, is interesting because um, the the first two seasons I was working with very showrunners um, uh, that sort of put limits on what I could do. But on the third season, the uh, creator, Lena Waithe, came by the show, and she's in the show now, and she sort of, uh, I want to say, sort of took the shackles off of of what I could do. So I think the music for the third season is going to be really interesting. It's got a lot of jazz trumpet and piano, and uh, everything I send in comes back approved, and I keep getting more experimental with each episode. Really? She keeps saying, great. (laughs) And she's actually listening to every cue, so um, I'm excited about the third season. Do you record it at your house? Pretty much, yeah, everything here. I mean, if I, if I have um, a big cue that needs like a more of a band sound, like a, a jazz cue, I will uh, go to a small studio. And But uh, I've been able to do everything here, actually, this season. Though. I, I mean, I have, a, I have a drum kit and everything set up and whatnot. So. Yeah. What about the True Detective series? Because that, to me, was such a masterpiece of, of music and 
and the, particularly that uh, I, you know, I, I love the first season and I know you're involved in the second season. I don't know if you did the third, but, but um, could you tell me about working on that with, uh, with T-Bone, like how that actually worked? Like, were you guys working in conjunction with each other or, or were you doing some cues and he was doing some or what? Uh, yeah, we're all working together, but, um, and separately. <laughs> so kind of like, okay. I mean, I get, you know, as with T-Bone, I, I get the call like, Hey, we're going on this show. Okay. I come over and it's like, well, this show's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the first season. So I started, we started to write right away and, um, try to find our voice. I was writing stuff. Keith us, was writing stuff, keep us chance yet. Okay. And T Bone yeah. was writing stuff. And um we just kind of and then we had a horn player who was doing all kinds of beautiful horn beds. Um yeah. you know multiple uh, trombones and trumpets and stuff. And uh we kind of as the show got going we found our voice but um interestingly the editor uh, Jason Warmer was a big part of it because we would occasionally get mixed up and write Keith and I would write a cue for the same scene, oh. and he would and he would just do these cool mashups of the of everything. Really? <laughs> just like sometimes the keys weren't even related, and he somehow put it all together in just a really cool way. So yeah. everybody was everybody, including our editor, had a very creative role in in the soundscape oh, cool. of that. Uh, that thing, you know, in that sort of like high end TV world, do you get complete picture and you're, and you're tracking to that and the director is giving you the specific, um, cues that he wants time wise or like how loose is it? Uh, we, we always are working to picture these days. And, um, okay. as far as I wasn't involved in the spotting sessions on that. So, I mean, I, I assumed uh, the editors, uh, he, he, was working pretty directly with the writer, the creator of that show. Um, in terms of like mood and spotting the scenes and where the music should end, where it should start and stuff like that. But we always worked a picture. Uh, and I would, I'd always be sent pictures that I could work to from my end of the world in my studio. Um, like finished edits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. I mean, I can't remember. I, I was a little less aware if it was locked picture or not locked picture, but it's pretty close to what it was going to be. If, if not locked, yeah. you know, then they would move the cue around to fit you know, if, if a length of the scene change or something, but, but pretty much it was, it was done. And as, as the show got going, you know, obviously the, the picture got more and more cohesive right. in terms of what we would actually get, you know? And were they, were they all pretty excited about what, what you guys were doing or was there like a lot of back and forth and having to go and redo stuff based on feedback? Um, I think originally there were, there was more back and forth because, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember if there's like, I think there might've been multiple directors for different episodes, uh, okay. uh, you know, yeah. and uh, some, so there was definitely some like awkward back and forth as I remember. Uh, I think, I, I, I think even Kivas had to fly out and meet with the one guy in New York to figure out what, but then things got calm after that. And then, you know, they just rolled along. And then the next two seasons, I think the next two the next one is just Kefis and T-Bone and they're using some of my cues from the earlier ones, but I'm not. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I'm not actually, I think I scored a few things at the end, like the last two episodes. And then the third season is, is just Kefis and T-Bone. Um, oh, you're uh, not involved uh, in that one. No, I mean, I, some of my cues made it in Kefis told me, but, um, but I wasn't involved in, uh, it's a, it's a really, I love the third season. I think uh, they did a great job on that. 
Yeah, that is a that's a good one. The the first one to me was really the the masterpiece though for like as a viewer I just thought it was great and the music was yeah. such a big part of it. Has that led to like a lot of other work in film and TV? Is that how the Shy Gig came along? Like was that through True Detective? The Shy Gig came along a different route. Um I actually um I did a I got a call from John Legend uh about a string arrangement and okay. I had done I had done a few things for him already. And then he sent me a song. He said, could you do an orchestra arrangement for this song? And it was a song called Glory that that he and Common had written. And then one other writer for the movie Selma. And so I was like, yeah. So I wrote out an arrangement for that, a big orchestral arrangement. And then that song went on to win, of course, the Golden Globe and the Oscar for Best Song and everything. And then uh, Common called me to play on a record he was doing right after that. And he was absolutely the sweetest guy in the world. And he, he, um, let me write strings just any way I wanted. And I was going pretty off the harmonic chart, like kind of for Kofi yeah. against hip hop. And I was really yeah. loving it. And he was like, yeah, was, you know, so and he paid for a big string orchestra, a 30 piece orchestra. And just, you know, I think the record label was balking and he said, I'll just pay for it. And, uh, so, awesome. and then I, play, I played on another record of his and somewhere along the line, common had, showing me the script called the shy and i remember talking about the music i think i thought he wanted me to help him write the music but uh later he just called me and said I'd, I'd like you to write the music for this show and uh i still oh, had to okay. go through the audition process i had to go to fox and score some things and let them know that i knew what i was doing i still had to do that process but that all came about um from working with common that show oh so, wow okay uh, yeah when you do string arrangements do you like play it all into your keyboard and then spit it out into Sibelius or something? Or like, how do you actually do like an orchestral string chart where there's, you know, 60 pieces or whatever? The way I do it is, uh, I mean, obviously the film score libraries are so just so extensive. You can have any kind, you can have any kind of size ensemble you want. You can have a 16 piece or a 40 piece, whatever that sounds. So I actually write them. Yeah. uh, I mock them up. Uh, pretty close to what they're going to sound like, you know, with it, okay. with each individual, each individual instrument, like a, um, you know, violin one, violin two, and then the articulation is yeah. exactly right. And so they have a, the artist who I'm working with, have a pretty good, pretty good idea of what it's going to sound like when we, cause they're throwing down, you know, 20 grand for a, you know, yeah. for, I'm not, they need to know. <laughs> right. Right. Is this going to be a train? They're going to like the days of the days are gone when you can just write it out a piece of paper. So and then yeah, from there I'll either move it to Sibelius or have an orchestrator do it for me. Uh, I I write oh, I in see. Logic. Okay. I I tend to write in Logic, and I used to use Logic's scoring. Uh, I, I I can actually do pretty good with their scoring thing, but it, of course it doesn't look as cool as Sibelius and all, all the Sibelius guys have put up their nose at it. But I could actually, I mean, I actually did Glory in Logic and <laughs> it worked fine. So. Amazing. And what software do you use to mock up um, the orchestra? Uh, originally I used to use, um, uh, LA scoring strings. I used to, I still sort of love that program. It's a very old, old program now. Uh, and they have a, uh, they had a, a quartet in there that was meant to just enhance the big string sounds. But I, sometimes I would use that quartet if I was mocking up a quartet as, as a oh, sample cool. set and it would work pretty good. Then, um, I've, course i use all the I, I tend to lean towards the spitfire world these days for almost everything 
Uh, but I'll go back and forth between those two first, first string sounds just for mock-ups. And is the film thing something that you're going to be doing more and more of? Like it seems like with T-Bone that that's sort of a thing that he's sort of going into more than music these days. And I'd imagine the you know the 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 budgets are better than than for albums. That's for sure. Uh, is that something that you're pursuing more and more? And that's what what you're going to be doing in the future? Or well, I hope so. It's my first love. It's it always has been. Uh-huh. Uh, film scoring. It's, it's something that's always amazed me. But the, just the, the idea that there's so many answers for a scene that are all correct answers. Yeah. Just, you can you can score any scene sixteen different ways, and no one way is going to be wrong. It's just all a matter of where you're, where you are as an observer in the picture. Are you are you in right. this guy's head? Are we looking at it from above? Are we looking at it from her viewpoint? They're all 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 different ways of scoring. So I I love that that world and hope it gets into more of it. The budgets are just like albums are going down for even that now. Everything's yeah. you know spinning <laughs> downward. But but uh you know I'll just I'll just any way the wind blows me I'll probably <laughs> <laughs> that's how i feel too <laughs> i just think whatever yeah man. whatever comes my way i'll just do a really really great job at it and see where it takes me <laughs> i love that about you man well it's been such a treat having you talking to me today and and finding out about all this stuff and man i sorry to take up so much of your time but I oh no the pleasure is mine to you thanks so much it's a blast talking to you <laughs> thanks again i really appreciate it and and great to talk to you good to have you have a have a great week okay you too all right All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patrick Warren. If you want to call in and be included in an upcoming episode, please do so. 615-375-6318 is the number to call. We'll see you next week for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.